I've, I've ministered on this. I want to talk to you about six things, and, and I don't know how this is not going to come out the way my notes are, are planned, but it'll come out the right way, the way the Lord wants it to. God gave me something fresh. I've got six things to know about the Passover feast. The Passover feast is the oldest feast in the world, and I've shared this a number of times, but this week God really, <coughs> excuse me, dealt with <coughs> me and gave me something complete. I never, I've never in my life shared it this way. <coughs> How many know God's promised to care for us and take care of us? In fact, the scripture that keeps coming to me is Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven, that says the eternal God is your refuge. And I love this, uh, just the mental picture. And underneath, and his everlasting arms are under you. King James says underneath, and that's why I messed up, are the everlasting arms. We sang a song in the Baptist church. Anybody ever sing that song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms? We sang it a lot in the Baptist church. Many times on Sunday nights, I, as a kid, I could almost tell you the page number, but nonetheless. But, but the idea is that God's watching over us, and, and he's taking care of us. Really, really, God's ideal, and God's idea is, he, he wanted to be the eternal father, and he is, and he wanted us to, to think of him as our father so that we could be his family. Isn't that awesome? So I've got a book by E.W. Kenyon. It's worth reading. I've read it many times called A Father and His Family. And that's the way I want you to see God. And uh, this Jewish feast, this Passover feast, it's tied directly to the communion table in the church of the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to mix my notes up a little bit because I just want you to see an angle that God gave me about this. How many know we're, it looks like we're living in the time just before Jesus comes back? And many Sundays uh, uh, recently, this year particularly, I have mentioned that we are living in a time where, where we're, we're, changing, we're, we're changing from an age. We're changing ages. We're changing dispensations. We've been in the church age for almost 2,000 years since Jesus was raised from the dead. But we're entering into a time that, that is, is uh, something that's fairly unknown to 21st century believers, but it's well known to believers all throughout the scriptures and the prophets mentioned it quite a bit. There is an age of eternal judgment that is coming. Now that's what the second coming of Christ is all about. Jesus is going to kick his enemies off this planet and he's going to come back and, and, uh, and rule over and uh, own what he has created to be his from the, from the inception of the human race. Is that good news or not? Now, the, 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 the other side of that is that really is a, a time of a very intense judgment. And I was praying, oh, last year sometime, maybe the year before, and God made, gave me the word epoch, which is a challenge, which is a changing time, and, and it's an important time. So we're living in an epoch, that is, we're, we're changing from one, from one way of living to another way of living. And and you know, you know as well as I do, it's crazy. The world seems to be going nuts uh, every week, and it becomes more intense as the weeks go by. Is that true? Uh, one of those things, two things are happening. Number one, Satan is a crazy person who actually thinks that he can control the entire world and take, take over what God created for his own. And he's going to do that in the person called the Antichrist, which will come on the scene. It could happen this year. It could really happen at any time. And the telltale sign of that is there'll be some kind of a peace agreement between Israel and their enemies that will be fostered by, by some, uh, some leader, probably a national leader of, of one of the nation states, probably, probably in the Middle East. 
you know, I don't want to say much more than that today except to say that could happen. When you see that, we got seven years left. Y'all and Jesus is coming back. Is that exciting? So, so I'm just trying to, uh, what I want to form is the idea that this is not going to be a real clean, tidy, sweet, fun time. It, it will be exciting, but exciting because you don't know what's going to happen next. And so we're, we're in the kind of, kind of beginning phases of that right now. Jesus uh, called it birth pangs. I would call it Braxton Hicks contractions. That's where we are right now. If you've listened to my podcasts, how many know what I'm talking about when I say Braxton? The women going, oh, I know what that is, you know. I've been on my podcast, I've been talking about the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church and what that's looking like. And I've been talking about all that. Nonetheless, I want to I give you an angle here uh, with, with communion because this is just incredible. In the middle of all the chaos, in the middle of all the mess that's going to be happening with respect to judgment, God has promised to take care of his people. Now, God originally designed Adam and Eve to have offspring, and, and he just come down fellowship with all of us and talk to us and know us by name. That didn't work out because of Adam and Eve's sin. So generations later, God appeared to a, to a, to a man from a moon-worshiping nation uh, called Abraham, and he called him out from his family, and he, uh, he, gave him a co- he cut a covenant with Abraham called the covenant of circumcision and said, Abraham, uh, from you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God envisioned a group of people that would live by faith, that would be taken care of by him, where God would fight their battles and God would overcome their enemies for them, and God would take care of them in the midst of chaos. Now, none of that has changed. And the God promised to Abraham that he would bless him and bless his offspring and bless all of his offspring from generations to come. So the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Now, we have been grafted into the family tree of God by virtue of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what Easter is all about. Are you excited about that? And because we've been grafted into the family tree of God, we have also received the covenant of circumcision. He has circumcised our hearts. Our hearts are changed. We're different people, and we're actually grafted into the family of God. So all of the promises that God has given His people through all of the ages belong to us. Now, when you take the communion, and I hope you got a communion cup, When you came in, we'll make sure you'll get one before the end because we'll end with communion. When you take that communion cup, that is a symbol that God has promised uh, that he will be your father, that he will watch over you, and he'll take care of you come what may. And so um, uh, Abraham's, what would that be, great-grandson happened to be a man by the name of Joseph who was sold into slavery. You know the story in the book of Genesis. He actually, at age 30, became the prime minister of Egypt. Y'all know the story, right? And then there was a tremendous famine in the land during that time, and he interpreted some dreams of the, of the leader of Egypt called the Pharaoh of the time. And he interpreted the dreams, and God gave him an, just an ingenious plan so that the world would not starve to death during a tremendous famine in the Middle East during that time. And so they saved up the wheat, saved up the grain uh, for the seven years prior to seven years of just terrible, terrible stuff. And during that time, during that time, God, um, God had Joseph bring his family to Egypt. And, and the Israelites stayed in Egypt, this covenant family stayed in Egypt. I've just got a mind to preach on this uh, after Easter. He, God placed the Israelites in a place called the land of Goshen. Everybody say Goshen. 
The, Israel, the Egyptians did not like the Israelites because they were, were shepherds and they, they stunk and smelled like animals. But God loved them regardless. And how many know God loves you? He doesn't care how you smell. In fact, you become a sweet-smelling savior to God by knowing Jesus as Lord. Is that good news? Nonetheless, they lived in Goshen. And for 400 years, 400 years passed, and the pharaohs, the leaders of Egypt, forgot that Joseph was, uh, was the ancestor, the former uh, prime minister of Egypt was, uh, was uh, ancestor to the Israelites, and they got tired of the Israelites. So bottom line, uh, uh, God spoke through Moses, who was born, and said after 400 years of bondage to Egypt, the Israelites were there. God spoke to Moses and said, I don't want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now here's, here's the kicker, and this is the slant that God gave me about this this week. Uh, God told Moses to go up to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. If not, there will be a series of divine judgments. Listen, against the gods of the Egyptians. Scriptures say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Do you hear what I'm saying? So, so the, the angst and the animosity and the, uh, I could use all kinds of terms, the vitriol in the atmosphere right now is as a result of the principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places fostering and trying to, and trying to bring up the spirit of Antichrist in every nation on earth, including the United States of America. And, and see, we are, we believers, we are salt, we are light. We're hindering the process. We're hindering what the enemy wants to do. You're hindering what the devil wants to do in your family. You're hindering what the devil wants to do in our community. You're hindering what the devil wants to do in our nation. You are a hindering force. You're salt, you're light. And you represent a covenant that God put in the earth. Is that good news? I could preach on that. So when God came through Moses and he said, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, you got to know about the Egyptians. They worshipped idols, and, and most, uh, most people groups in history uh, worshipped, were, were heavily involved in idolatry. They were tremendously superstitious, so everything had a God behind it. I've been to India many times. They've got, I can't believe, I, I keep trying to figure this out, being wrong, 300 million gods, little g-gods, they're so superstitious, and so were the Egyptians. They had a, they had a God for everything. So every one of those, uh, every, every one of those judgments against the gods of the Egyptians, every one of the plagues was against the gods of the Egyptians during Moses' day. How many know what I'm talking about? So I, I actually augmented my notes. This is in my notes. I don't have to, time to go into detail, but the first plague against the Egyptian gods where it was the Nile turning to blood. The Nile was a source of life. And when God did that, it hit nine of the, of the superstitious gods of the Egyptians right upside the head. I'm talking about Kun, Sati, Hopi, Osiris, Hathor, Neith, Sebek, Apepi. Uh, they were crazy gods. And these people actually believe they manipulated nature. God said, I'll show you who manipulates nature. It's called God Almighty, the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and his family. The covenant-keeping God, yes or no? Second plague was the plague of frogs. That was right against the Egyptian god 
uh, Hika, the frog goddess, and they believed that had to do with fertility. The third one was the plague of lice. That was a directly against the Egyptian god called Seth. That was the dust god. They wanted everything clean, ritually pure, so they could do their sacrifices to their gods. And God said, I'm going to make a mess of that. The fourth plague was the plague of flies, which was against the god Vachit, which is the Egyptian equivalent of Beelzebub, and he's just a nasty fly god. Number five was the plague against the cattle, uh, Serapis and Oserapis, uh, which was really this god had to do, they believed he was an incarnation of the gods, and, and it was trying to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a, this was a plague against the cattle, the murrain they called them, and they died. Boils was the next plague, number six. It was against the, uh, god Ta and Osiris and other gods that were thought to cure diseases, and they couldn't get rid of the pussy little boils that broke out on their skin. Their god had failed them again. Number seven was the hail god, and that was Nuke, the goddess of sky and weather. And, uh, oh my goodness, they hailed and hailed and broke down their, uh, their, um, uh, plants, their vegetation, killed some of their animals. It was a terrible, terrible blight. God came against the God Geb, Emunra, Osiris, Pharaoh was also recognized as a God during that time. Number eight was the plague of locusts, Sobek. And maybe you've seen in history this man with a crocodile head. Well, that's Sobek. He was the God of animals and the God of insects. So locusts covered the ground. God said, I'll show you who's in charge of nature. It's called me, God Almighty. Number nine was the plague of darkness. And many, uh, many, uh, many uh, people groups have worshipped the sun throughout history. And so this is a direct attack against the sun god, Amun-Ra. And, uh, and they believe because the sun brought vitality. The sun brought crops. The sun brought life to planet earth, so they worshiped the sun. And God just basically said, I'll show you who's in control of the sun. And then last but not least, there was one other plague against, uh, the final plague was against six gods that protected children. Hika, Isis, Min, Horus, Bes, and Pharaoh, and uh, the death of the firstborn. So with the death of the firstborn, that was the, that was the clincher. That was it. And God basically said, I'm going to show you who is in charge of life. And so, uh, and so we're going to talk about that in a minute. I just wanted to give you a very quick and brief summarization of the fact that, that uh, when e- Israel left Egypt, there was judgment against the gods of the Egyptians. You get it? And when we are leaving planet earth just before the rapture of the church, my friends, there is a series of judgments against the gods that the human race has worshipped through all of the millennia of time. And I want you to know, you say, well, that's in other lands. They have idols and idolatry. My friends, we're just as, we're just as guilty in America of worshipping false gods and idols of anybody else. And we might be worse. So, right now in America, we're worshiping, uh, you know, we're worshiping Baal. We're worshiping Cyrus and Osiris. Say, how you doing that? Every time a person has an illicit act of sex, 
outside of the framework of a, of a man and a woman in marriage that God created to be holy and pure. For this man reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too will be one flesh. Genesis 2.24, God sanctioned the institution of marriage. Before there was a government, there was a marriage because it's supposed to be the father and his family and that's to exemplify the relationship that God has with his people. God takes care of us the way a husband should take care of his wife and we happen to be the bride of Christ. Is that good? But in, uh, but in America today, we worship the devil. Many people worship Satan every time they have an illicit act of sex, every time they click on a porn, pornographic image, every time they, they choose to do with their bodies what God said don't do because you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Cyrus, Osiris. And then we have a huge blight on our nation. And these things that I'm talking about, we're not the only nation. The nations of the earth are worshiping the sex god called Baal. Did you hear what I just said? Cyrus, Osiris. It's a terrible thing worldwide. Now I'm coming to find out, and it's leaking out, uh, that the, the uh, hierarchy of leaders that control politics and money and everything, they're deeply in bed with Baal worship. Uh, they're actually involved in some pretty sadistic things that I'm not going to talk about on Sunday morning. I just wanted to know as Jesus comes back, all of these gods will be judged. In America, we have one other one that's particularly nasty and terrible and vile. And uh, it's been worshipped by slaughtering over 63 million children in abortion. God created life, a human being, doesn't have the right nor authority to take it himself. And when he does, God calls it murder. Did you hear what I'm saying? That's different than killing in war. Murder is when you premeditatively take another life. And when a person murders another person, particularly when parents murder their babies, they're actually worshiping the god Molech, which in history, you've seen it in the pictures in the books of a, of a god with a, you know, with a with a the head of a, of a of an animal, and and he's got his arms out, and they're set on fire, and they would pass their sons or daughters through the fire. Many, many people groups in history have done that, and they were saying, "I'm dedicating my child to the god Molech," and and most of the time, these children died in that process. Friends, we're doing we we don't have the idol set up somewhere, but we're doing exactly the same thing when we abort our babies. You don't have the right to abort a child that was conceived. I don't care if it was conceived in sin. A child is a child. A child is a human life, and human life is protected by God Almighty. Yes or no? So see, when Jesus comes back, it's more than you realize. And the age that we're going into, this age of judgment, it's not a judgment against you. It's a judgment against the demon spirits. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians, when you worship idols, you're worshiping devils. You're worshiping demon spirits. You're bowing your knee to them. And there'll be an epitome of all of, the, all of these gods that I mentioned, these demon spirits that, that Egypt allowed uh, to control them. Uh, the epitome and the, and the incarnation of all of these gods will be Antichrist. Perhaps he'll be demon-possessed by all of these demon spirits. 
And his whole goal and design is to rule the entire world financially and politically and make life a living hell But while he promises a utopian paradise. It's, a, it's all based on a fraud, all based on a lie. How many hear me? Jesus comes back. I'm telling you, it's going to be a judgment against the gods. And God has promised his people as all of this stuff begins to take place before Jesus comes back and before we leave in the rapture of the church, church uh, God has promised that we have a covenant. And as he protected the Israelites during all of those plagues against Egypt, God has promised to take care of us. Is that good news? And every time you take communion, you're saying, God, I live spiritually in the land of Goshen. God, you've promised to watch over my life, to care for me and protect me regardless of how dire and dreary and weird the world comes. I'm in your family. I'm part of, I'm part of you. I'm cared for by you. Underneath me are your everlasting arms and I thank you for your provision and protection. Oh, and Hebrew, uh, Revelation chapter 12 says, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Is that good news? So in the light of all I said, I want you to turn over in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12 or look on the screen because the communion table is patterned right after the Passover feast, which is 3,500 years old. Oldest feast in the world. And it's a feast where God promised to be everything his people need. He promised to be their all in all. He promised to cleanse their sin. He promised to give them relationship with him. He promised to care for them in a provisional way, all in the necessity of, uh, necessities of life, food, water, shelter. He promised to keep their bodies well. He promised to watch over them in their earth journey. And that's the promise of God to us today. Here's the last of those 10 plagues against the gods of Egypt, Exodus 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, this is New King James Version, and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. So they changed their annual, the beginning of the year, to the month that represented, that this feast represented and where it began. This month shall be your beginning of months. That shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Everybody say a lamb. According to the house of his father, say a lamb for a household. So, so here's what he said. Here's what I want you to do. There's going to be a feast. Before you leave Egypt, uh, you have a covenant with me. I want you to take a lamb, uh, one, one year or less of age, and, and I want you to take it to your family a lamb, that made that, that made that lamb personal to that household. And if the household too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him, uh, uh, his house, take it according to the number of persons. Each, uh, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for. Now say the lamb. So, so he just changed from a lamb to the lamb. That's very significant. Uh, your lamb shall be, everybody say your lamb. See, a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, it, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So from the 10th day of the month to the 14th day of the month, they got a goat or a sheep, a little baby, less than a year old, year old or less. 
and uh, they took it to that, that home, and, and they stayed with it. How many know children are endeared to animals? You know, I've, I've done a lot of time in India. We've got churches there in the rustic areas without water and electricity, and I have, I have spent many nights in thatch-roofed huts. And then in the morning when I get up and open my door and look out trying to find me a cup of coffee that I have to figure out how to brew, uh, I look out, and here's this little goats and these little sheep. And, you know, those little ones, they're just frol frolicking around. And those, I mean, those kids, you fall in love with them. They just prance around and jump and dance and play. And so can you imagine the Israelites when God said, take, take a lamb and make it your lamb? And you keep it for four days. During that four days' time, the children probably became endeared to that little lamb. It, it became the family's pet. Maybe they gave it a name. Here's Herbie. Or here's... You know, you give it your name. I won't try to go past that. Then it says the whole assembly of the congregation. Now, after the fourth day, whoa, the assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it hmm. at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Why did God do what he did? Why did God have them take a goat, live with it for four days, and then in front of the children, kill it, gather its blood, and then, and then get, it, get maybe some, something like broom straw, that, which we had in the fields when I was a kid, dip it in it, and then, and then put it over the door of their house. Why did God do that? He was looking ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has to become the personal Savior the personal redeemer from sin for each person in the human race. Jesus shed his blood for me and you. And without the shedding of blood, the scripture says there's no remission of sin. So this little goat, this little lamb, has represented Jesus to the Israelites, and they didn't know it at the time. We can look back and see it clearly. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus with the lamb of sacrifice. The lamb, Revelation 13, 8 says, was slain from the foundations of the world, right? And so you have to have a relationship with him. Notice what it said this lamb will do. The whole assembly shall kill it at twilight, towards the end of the day there. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, watch this, roasted in fire. Everybody say fire. Fire stood for judgment. Jesus took our judgment in sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, when he died, he didn't die for himself for he didn't sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became our sin sacrifice, that we might be made right with God through him. When Jesus got, died, he assumed our sin. He, he assumed the obligations of what sin meant. Sin meant that we can't go to heaven. Sin meant that we have to pay the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin, according to God, is incarceration in hell and then being cast into the lake of fire. When Jesus died, Matthew 12, 40, Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 3, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, all reveal the fact that when Jesus died, he didn't go to heaven, he went to hell. And he stayed there until your sin debt was paid, until my sin sacrifice and your sin sacrifice, the penalty due because we have done wrong, Jesus paid that. 
in his own body on the cross, the Bible says. Is that good news for you? It wasn't good news for Jesus at the time. He was separated from his father. So when that lamb was roasted in fire, all of that was in that, that symbolism, that symbolism of the lamb being roasted in fire. That symbolism shows today what we understand. Jesus became our sin sacrifice. And, and, and when you take the communion table, you're saying you believe that Jesus' blood cleanses you from sin and, and Jesus' sacrifice sets you free from hell. Is that good news? Just like the Israelites, they went in the strength of that, of that sacrifice. We'll read here in just a minute. So it says again, they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire. Notice with unleavened bread. Everybody say unleavened. And let me stop there a minute. Unleavened bread has no yeast in it. I just, this is weird. I just started making bread. I bought a bread machine. And, you know, you got to do, you got to put the ingredients in there a certain way, you know, and then dig a little hole and then you put the yeast, you don't let the yeast touch anything. That yeast is a powerful force. That yeast, all you baker ladies that know are men too, I mean, you know, you, you mix yeast in, in dough and it's, it's going to ferment and rise. That yeast has to do with sin. Leaven has to do with sin. A little leaven, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, um, contaminates the whole lump of dough. And so he said, unleavened bread. They shall eat the flesh of that little lamb on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread. What he was saying was, that lamb will enable you to deal with sin in your personal life. Now, later on, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Israelites uh, observed the Passover feast. And then the next, next week after that was a week of unleavened bread. And during that week of unleavened bread, they would search every day through the houses. It became a ritual for them. They'd search through the houses, the, the uh, women and the children, perhaps along with the husbands. They'd search under, under all the furniture, behind all the chairs, around all the tables, and they would look for any particles of dust, anything, anything that would make that house unclean. It was a type of leaven for them. And so the week of unleavened bread, they cleaned their houses every day. And that was symbolic of us needing to cleanse our lives. We walk with God, we confess our sins, and we ask Him to work inside of us. Yes or no? And we're changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Is that right? And so there never should be a day that goes by that I don't say, search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me, and know my thoughts, and see if there's anything wrong inside of me, what, what David prayed, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. So he said here, they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread. Uh, the other reason it was unleavened, because they didn't have time for it to rise. They had to, they had to, he told them, put your shoes on, put your britches on, put your belt on, get everything ready, get all of your essentials. You're moving out of town tonight. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. Even in my little bread maker, you got it takes a couple hours for the bread to rise. They didn't have time. They ate unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Everybody say bitter. The bitter herbs. Uh, they had to eat endive chicory or somebody said maybe even dandelions they would eat. And when you ate those bitter herbs, you know, it wasn't fun to eat. It was nasty. I mean, uh, you know, you eat something bitter. Oh, my goodness. It puts your teeth on edge, doesn't it? And that was to remind them of several things. Number one, 400 years their ancestors were in Egypt. 
400 years, their ancestors were in bondage to the uh, leaders, leaders of Egypt. 400 years, they had a bitter, hard, terrible life. Other thing it reminded them of was that little lamb they had, that little uh, lamb or goat they had, goat or sheep, four days in their, in their house. That, 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 that little goat had to endure something terrible for them. It had to be slaughtered, and then its whole body had to be roasted in, in the fire. That was a, a bitter thing. How many know Jesus' death wasn't nice? Jesus' death wasn't fun. And that bitterness reminds us that Jesus himself had to un undergo the torments of the damned for me and you as he was made to be our sin. Yes or no? Then it says, Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall, not let, uh, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I'll pass through the land of Egypt on that night with that, ten plague, that tenth plague against the six gods, demon spirits that the Egyptians looked to for help. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike at the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Wow. Isn't that something? Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land. Now, you know what's very significant is that today we observe the communion table. And when we can make, take the communion elements, just like the Israelites observed that Passover feast that night before they left Egypt uh, through the Red Sea, and it, it parted and they passed through on dry ground. As they, as they went, judgment came on the Egyptians, and judgment came on the Egyptian army. But how many know God took care of every Israelite. Not one of them perished. The Bible scholars estimate as many as two and a half million people came out of Egypt, crossed the waters of the Red Sea, went, on the, uh, went right through the river as it was congealed on both sides and, and went on out into the desert. How many know God protected them, God cared for them, and watched over them during a tremendous time of judgment? So I want to remind you again that while these ten plagues were executed uh, through Moses by God against the, against the gods of the Egyptians. God watched over his people. That's a parallel to today again. As we go through the time that we're going through, don't you one time allow fear to rule your life or any attitude that somehow, how am I going to make it through this? God has always made a way for his people because he's a covenant-keeping God. And you have a covenant with him because of Abraham, because of Isaac, because of Jacob, and because of Joseph, and because of Moses, and because of this, and because of what God has always promised to do for his people. He's promised to care for you. So anytime you wake up, any morning you wake up and the news says this, or, you know, this terrible calamity's happened there, or something's happened here, you need to stand up and say, Father, I stand before you, and I remind you that I overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony. A thousand may fall at my side and 10,000 at my right hand, but somehow you're going to make a way for me because I have a covenant with you. Thank you for your provision. And as we stand in faith, we're going to see the miracles of God. How many hear me? 
And God's going to use you. Listen, God's going to use you to minister life to others. And the Lord's spoken to me in my prayer times for many years now, and I never understood it until now. And I kept having the sense during my prayer time that the gift of the Spirit called the working of miracles, which where God literally sets aside the laws of physics and does things to minister provision for his people. How many know that Jesus, I can't figure out yet how he, how he violated the laws of physics and took three loaves of bread and two small fish and fed over 5,000 people. Bible scholars estimate as many as 10, 15,000 if you include the women and children. How did he do it? God Almighty watched over him. The working of miracles came into manifestation. If it came down, they're talking about food prices rising. They're talking about the supply chain withering. And they're talking about the store shelves being empty. I want you to know God's made provision for me and you. And if, he has, if you have to point at the ground and say, food, grow, somehow God Almighty will cause a piece of broccoli to rise up. And somehow, supernaturally, you'll like the broccoli. Or maybe the zucchini. Or maybe some wheat. I don't know. Maybe some tomatoes, corn, whatever you like, right? How many know God's able to do anything? He can take that last morsel of food you got and make provision for you. Is that true? Don't, don't, don't forget Elijah with the widow of Zarephath in first. What is it, First Samuel 7, is it First Kings 17? Remember that? She had, she had one little bit of wheat flour left, one little bit of olive oil left. She says, well, I'm going to bake me a little piece of bread, and me and my son after that, we're going to starve to death. It takes 47 days for all of the organs of your body, uh, scientists say, to, to shut down with, with, with starvation. 47, they say, well, I'm going to eat it and die, we'll die. But Elijah came on to the scene and said, this is not what God said, you're not going to die. He said, you break that bread and give that last portion to me. That seems selfish on Elijah's part, but he was enacting the gift of working of miracles. She baked that bread trembling. And oh God, what's it going to feel like to starve to death? She put that in Elijah's hand. And the moment she did, Elijah said, why don't you go check your flour bin? It's full of flour. Go check your, go check your vat of oil. So look down there, well, my Lord, where'd all that oil come from? And the whole time there was a famine in the land of Israel. She kept dipping the flour. She kept dipping the oil. My friend, we have a covenant God. He's made covenant promises. Every time you take that communion table, you're saying, God, I trust you more than I trust man. I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust you in the middle of a famine. I trust you in the middle of a storm. I trust you in the middle of the judgment against all of the demon spirits who are trying to rule this world. I trust you with my life. Woo, is that awesome? Would you lift your hands right with me where you are and thank God for his provision for you? Lord, thank you so much for the covenant, Lord God Almighty, that you've made with us and with our ancestors, with Abraham. Lord, thank you for the testimonies we have from the scriptures of how you cared for your people during a time of judgment against all of the demonic entities that ruled their cultures. And Lord, here we are today. Here we are today. Oh, dear Father God, do we ever need you? Do we need to hear your voice? Do we need to cling to you? Do we need the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us and frees us and makes a way for us and protects us? Lord, thank you again today that we live in the land of Goshen. Lord, I thank you along with every person in this room for your provision for us. Thank you for watching over us in Jesus' name. You agree with that?